earthquakes, those seismic events whereby the tectonic plates within the Earth's core move and shift, causing shaking on the surface and splits and upheaval, and oftentimes causing massive damage to property and oftentimes great loss of life. Estimates say that there's about 500,000 detected earthquakes every year. Sounds amazing to me. Only about 100,000 of them are actually felt personally by people, and only about 100 actually cause major damage. But the one thing that all major earthquakes have in common is that after the big event, there are those smaller events called the aftershocks. And sometimes it's the aftershocks that cause almost as much damage and harm as the initial event because it simply augments the preliminary damage that was done and begins to add to it. And it also adds to the emotional damage done in people's hearts and minds who experienced the first shaking and now are feeling some of the smaller ones. This morning I want to talk about an event or an experience or a subject matter that is kind of like an earthquake. It causes great shaking, it causes upheaval, it causes as things to be, be moved around and shifted. And once all the dust has settled and the air has cleared, there's oftentimes still those little aftershocks that can continue to cause damage if they are not properly responded to and dealt with. The subject I'm talking about is that of church discipline. Now, church discipline as a subject is not very popular. And church discipline as an experience is about as much fun as a root canal. But th this might be a good time to talk about church discipline because to my knowledge there's no person or situation within this church where these principles have to be applied. And so all of you can just sit back and learn and relax no matter how guilty you might be. The Bible talks about church discipline and from the standpoint of, an, of a definition, I would give it this definition. Church discipline is simply actions or responses of a church body toward a member or members who have committed public sin. Now, now let's face it, all of us sin. But this is talking about public sin. Sin that is generally larger in nature. Sin that is known. Sin that is perhaps ongoing in its actions or in its ramifications. Or sin that has the potential of damaging the church body as a whole. Public sin. Its purpose, that is church discipline's purpose, is threefold. One is to correct the wrongdoer. The second is to restore the wrongdoer to full fellowship and to maintain the purity of the body within and the integrity of the body without. So church discipline is a very big and very important subject, one that the Bible talks about. Now, I will say that today we're not going to bore down into the deep recesses of church discipline because we're going to be talking about the aftershocks. 
Those things on the periphery. Once an event like this has taken place within a church, we're going to talk about how we ought to respond to the aftershocks. The Bible talks about church discipline in the book of Matthew. We could go there, which we won't this morning. It talks about how to, what to do with a brother who sins. You go to him personally. You go with an elder. You go take him before the church. And then the Apostle Paul writes a lot about church discipline. And we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. So if you've got a Bible, flip over to 2 Corinthians. Many of the verses will be up on the screen, but some will not. So you'll, be, you'll benefit by having your Bible or your iPad or whatever you use with ready to turn to different chapters. But as we look at this subject today, I think it's important that we note, first of all, how Paul interacted with the church in Corinth. Paul had many dealings with the church in Corinth, and so he had earned the right to speak into some of the deep issues within the church. His first interaction with Corinth is found in book of Acts, chapter 18. His first visit there was on his second missionary journey, and it was there in Corinth that Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, those two Jewish, that Jewish couple who became believers and became powerful in the word. It's also in Corinth where Paul finally said, I'm now taking this gospel to the Gentiles. Not just to do, I'm now going to take it to the Gentiles. So it was a very momentous step in the movement of the gospel around the world. Paul was there at that time on his first missionary journey for about a year and a half. After he left and traveled, continued to travel, serving other places and establishing other churches, word came back to him of issues that were arising within the church at Corinth. And so Paul wrote a letter. Paul wrote many letters. But he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. This first letter to Corinth, unfortunately, or by God's grace, maybe fortunately, has been lost in antiquity. So we don't have copies of it. But Paul did refer to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you might want to flip to that just for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 where Paul writes... And he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he goes on, and in verse uh, 11, he also says, Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if you should be an immoral person. So the word had gotten to him about an immorality situation within the church at Corinth. And Paul wrote this letter. He then followed it up with a second letter, which is what we have in our Bible entitled 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with a whole myriad of problems within the the church at Corinth. It was a troubled bunch of folks. He had to respond in 1 Corinthians to not only immorality situations, but there were uh, church divisions, church splits taking place, people taking sides. There was, a, there was questions about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus that he had to deal with. There was questions about the, the correctness of a Christian taking another Christian to court, litigating against one another. There was abuses of the Lord's Supper. There was all these different issues that Paul addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians. Someone has said that that is the source book of answers for churches. After that letter, 
word continued to arrive on Paul's doorstep, wherever he was, that there was additional problems in Corinth. And so he made a second visit to Corinth, one that is referenced in 2 Corinthians 2, where we're going to be in a few minutes. But it was referred to as a painful visit. Paul arrived and had to speak to people directly, face to face, about some of these issues and, and call them down on it, call them on the carpet on it. And it was a painful visit for Paul. He did not enjoy it at all, but he went and did it. After that visit, and he left and moved on to other ministries, another word came to Paul. The report came back that someone had come into the church, whether it was a man or men or a group of people, came into the church who began to badmouth him as the church planter. They began to criticize him. They began to undercut apostolic authority. They began to bring false doctrine into the church and just began to, to sow dissension among the body. And so Paul wrote another letter, another one which unfortunately has been lost in antiquity, but is references in 2 Corinthians where we're going to be, and it was called a severe letter one where he really laid it on the written line as to what should be done and how it should be handled and what ought to be expected and what the results could be if, in fact, his instructions were followed correctly. After that severe letter, he then wrote 2 Corinthians. And that's where we're going to be this morning. And it's going to be referring back and referencing back to this difficult letter that he had to write. Paul then made a third visit to Corinth later on in his, in his ministry. But now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to just read these first four verses fairly quickly just to let them lay a basis for where we're going. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. What he's saying there is, I, the last time I came was a painful visit. It was hard. It was difficult, and I didn't like it at all. I don't want to do that again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote to you. Lest when I come, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul is saying, I, I had a hard time when I visited you last time. And it made you sorrowful. It was a tough time. It hurt my heart. In fact, he says, next verse, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul says that painful visit and that severe letter tore at my heart to have to say these things, to have to write these things. And I want you to know I did it not because I was angry or mad or, or ticked off. I did it out of my love which I have especially for you. Anytime direct confrontation can happen out of a true sense of love, it can be successful and can result in restoration 
of a relationship and of a person. Now, let's go on to, chapter, to verse 5. This is where I want our focus to come in. The aftershocks. The things that happen after a heavy event like this takes place. How do we respond? Paul wrote in, in verse 5. If anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. If anyone has caused sorrow, this is reference to the person or persons who had come into the body and began to undermine his ministry and began to sow dissension in the church. He's saying, I want you to realize that that this brought sorrow, not just to me, but hopefully to all of you. Response number one to the aftershocks of a church discipline situation is to identify with the hurt of the situation. Identify with the hurt. Realize that the person or persons who have been disciplined are definitely hurt. It doesn't feel good to have those kinds of things brought down on us. They were hurt. Undoubtedly, their families were hurt. It trickled down to their friends who were hurt. And it leaked out through the church. And the church should feel the hurt. We must identify with the hurt of such a situation. And here's the reason why. It's so easy to cast out glib accusations and pat answers where if I identify with how much this really hurts, I'm going to be less likely to fire off thoughtless, compassionless words and statements. So we must begin by identifying with the hurt of the situation. Next verse. Verse 6, we see, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. As church people, as church leaders, whenever hard confrontational issues like this has to be dealt with, we hopefully try to handle them as close to the vest as possible and keep them as quiet as possible and minimize the collateral damage as much as possible. But no matter how hard we try, what happens? Word always leaks out and pretty soon everybody knows that everybody knows and it's no longer a well kept secret and we need to identify with the reality of public humiliation someone who's, who's gone through this is, gets to the place where suddenly uh, they won't make contact with others within the church or other church members won't make contact with with them anymore. You see them in the aisle in the grocery store so you switch aisles lest it be kind of an awkward kind of of confrontation or an awkward situation is that when I should be able to say hi to them as a friend now because of what happened I'm not sure I can be friendly anymore I'm not sure they like me anymore Uh, public humiliation is a powerful disciplinary tool that 
I think sometimes the Lord uses to accomplish his ends. To say nothing of self-inflicted humiliation. How often have you ever said, after you've done something stupid, you said, I could just kick myself. Or I could say, boy, I'm so stupid. Well, no, I'm not stupid. I did something stupid, but I'm not stupid. And we do this public humiliation or private humiliation. But if I identify with the public humiliation that is being felt undoubtedly by the person who had been disciplined, it's going to keep me from being one to continue to feed the rumor mill. I'm not going to be so quick to want to talk about this again or to want to share it someplace as a prayer request. I'm going to want to let the thing quiet down. Because as Paul put it, public humiliation or punishment by the majority is a powerful, powerful thing. Next verse. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, before we can even look at this too closely and apply it, we have to make an assumption. We have to assume that repentance has taken place. That the person disciplined has in fact repented of their actions. Now, we're not told that he did here, but if you turn to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, we're going to find proof that, in fact, this person did repent. Now, I don't have these words up on the screen, so you'll have to find it in your own Bible and follow along with me. 2 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 8, we read this, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, that sorrowful letter that he had, that severe letter he had to write. Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Ah, that's good. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss, In anything through us, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. I love that phrase. A repentance without regret. That means a repentance that carries with it no additional guilt. The guilt is gone because I've repented truly from my heart. Now the memory of what I did may not be erased. The consequences of what I did, I still may have to endure. But the guilt is gone. And then verse 10, or rather verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent. And then he goes on to continue to strengthen the fact that this person had repented. Now, as a result of the repentance, we can go to this verses 7 and 8. Our response at this point of the event ought to be to replace public humiliation with public honor. The person had been humiliated publicly, and maybe rightly so. 
But now that repentance has taken place. We ought to be as quick to talk about the fact that this person now is restored and is forgiven and is comforted and is loved and return back to full fellowship with the body again. As publicly as he was humiliated, let's publicly honor him with forgiveness, with comfort, and reaffirming our love for him. Replacing the public humiliation with public honor. I remember when Paul and Silas, the story you're well familiar with, Paul and Silas were in prison. Remember, they had been arrested for preaching. They had been beaten in the public square, just beaten to a bloody pulp, and then thrown in prison. And that's where Jesus showed up. And an angel came and shook the prison, and the chains fell off, and uh, the prisoners were, were free. And the Philippian jailer thought, sure, they'd all gotten away, so he was going to kill himself. And Paul said, no, 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 don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And the result was that the Philippian jailer gave his life to the Lord and his whole family got saved. And the word got back to the magistrates who then told the policeman, go down and tell the jailer, just let these guys go. Just, just let them go. And Paul said, no, you beat us publicly. You come down and let us go. Replace the public humiliation with the public honor that is due the situation. Next verse. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient to all things. When I first read that verse, I thought, now that test is a test to, uh, directed to the guy that sinned to see if he truly repented, to see if he truly got his ducks back in a row, to see if he really meant what... No, I don't believe so. That test is for the whole body. To see, are you going to pass the test of forgiveness? Are you going to pass the test of comforting this one now and loving him and reaffirming him and restoring him back into the body and not remembering? Oh, I, I, sometimes we say, I forgive, but I can't forget. We better learn to forget if we're going to restore someone back to full love and full comfort and full forgiveness within the body of Christ. Response number four is pass the spiritual test. Then number nine, verse 10. For whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, I took Greek years, years, years ago in Bible college. I don't remember any of it. Except for one little piece of information that kind of stuck with me, and that's regarding the Greek word if. The little word if. It can be used in three different ways within the, the uh, Greek text. One, it can say, if, and it may or may not be. You might say, if I get home today safely, and you may or you may not. But if I do, that's use number one. The second use is, if, and we, and we know it's certainly not true. An example of this is when Jesus hung on the cross, the soldiers stood at his feet, and they said, if you're the Son of God, and we certainly know you're not, but if you are, come on down. That was the implication in the Greek text. The third one is what we find here. If, and in fact, it is so. If I have forgiven anything, and in fact, I have. I've forgiven this brother. I've forgiven the hurt that he caused me. I've forgiven all the things he said and done. I have forgiven him. But then I love the last phrase. I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ. 
Response number five is to model the response desired. Listen, if I want people within my church to forgive the wrongdoer, I better forgive him myself. If I want him to be loved and restored and spoken with and visited with as friendly, with as much friendliness as he ever was prior to the event, back in the foyer, around the coffee and around the donuts, I better be the one modeling the response. He said, I didn't do it for him. I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ. And then our last verse here this morning is verse 11. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Satan would love to see us be a church full of unforgiveness. A church that will not restore. A church that holds grudges. A church that will not forget. We must, response number six, if I can get it to come up there, guard against the temptation to not do the things that Paul has just instructed. Guard against the temptation to not be a forgiver, to not be a restorer. Guard against that temptation. Because when I do, I leave the door open for Satan to get his hooks in and to begin to find a place where he can set up housekeeping. And he loves to do that. Take someone who's willing to step out of the comfort zone of lethargy and overtly forgive, overtly reach out, and overtly bring back someone who's had to be disciplined within the church. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who's an author and a teacher, has tells a story about a young man who had grown up in the church, who knew the Lord and had walked with the Lord, but then he came to a point in his life where he strayed, and he strayed badly and was out of the church. Through the, the efforts of a friend and obviously the efforts of the entire church body, this young man was brought back to full for repentance, full forgiveness, full restoration within the body once again. And Dr. Hendricks asked him, what was it like while you were straying from the Lord? And he said, it was kind of like I was out in the sea and I was in deep water and I was in deep trouble and all my friends were standing on the shore and they were hurling biblical accusations of, of justice and penalty and wrong at me till one friend jumped into the sea and swam out to me and took a hold of me and I tried to fight him off I tried to push him away I tried to resist but he wouldn't let go and he finally slipped a life jacket around my shoulders and he brought me to the shore and now today by the grace of God and by this friend I'm restored, I'm back, I'm where I am today. You see, this friend, he said, would just not let me go. We need to be people like that. And we need to pray, always pray to have eyes that see the best in people, a heart that forgives the worst, 
a mind that forgets the bad, and a soul that never loses faith in God. How many of you recognize that quote? Some of you should. It's hanging on the wall outside of our offices here in this church.